Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. And now I watch and wait for the day the young one will be mine again. Hey everyone, welcome to Insight. My name is Ali and with me as always is my co-host Charlie. What is going on with you? Not much. The usual. Recording night. Always exciting. All ready for Christmas? Uh, no, but I will be by December 24th. That's your goal. <laughs> I, I, I shoot for the stars here. How are you? Yeah, doing well. I've finished my Christmas shopping. I, it's extremely hot here at the moment, and I just want to limit the amount of times I'm at the shops. Oh my gosh, it's so cold here. It's finally cold, but it's it's probably going to snow soon. I'm a bit jealous. Oh yeah, you have that no snow thing. No. no. That, that's a, a growing up in Connecticut, which is in the northeast part of the U.S., I can't even imagine not having seen snow i've seen so much snow in my life so much unfortunately i'm coming to indianapolis the wrong time of year which is a good segue into talking about crime con so don't forget crime con in june next year everyone we are almost at the end of the year so time is running out to get your early bird discount you can get a further 20 percent off by using the code insightful20 uh, not only will you be able to meet us, but there are so many podcasters going to be there. Charlie and I were talking about the Missing Maura Murray boys earlier on. We'll be front row of their discussion. Uh, there's also Gen Y, Thinking Sideways, Twisted Philly, Already Gone, Once Upon a Crime, and I'm sure there's going to be so many more. Go to crimecon.com for more information. So this week, we have two stories for you. They aren't directly related, but both involve a series of threatening and disturbing letters, poison pen letters, so to speak. The first story is one of my favourite unsolved mystery episodes back in the day, the Circleville Letters. In 1976, the people of Circleville, Ohio, started receiving some quite sinister handwritten letters. The letters weren't signed and there were no and there was no name or returned address attached, so there was no way of knowing who was sending them. They were written in nondescript block-style writing. The author seemed to know the personal details about each person that received a letter, and he claimed to be watching them. These letters were filled with profanity and hatred, with some sexual innuendo thrown in for good measure. The letters were postmarked from nearby Columbus, which was about a 25-minute drive south of Circleville. And before we get into the story, Circleville was only a small suburban town, and I did check the census, and in 1976, it had a population of a little over 11,000 people. It was a kind of town where everybody knew everyone, or thought they knew everyone, so news spread rather quickly about these letters. And there were a lot of letters. By the end of it, almost 500 letters and postcards were sent. All had the same postmark, all had the same handwriting. Some of these letters were really vulgar or sexual in nature, but some accused people of murdering other people or being involved in some pretty serious crimes that they've never been charged with or, as far as I could tell, even connected to. Correct. One of these people that were the lucky recipients was Mary Gillespie. Mary drives a school bus in Circleville. She's married to Ron, and they have a couple of children. They were just your typical suburban family. Well, until Mary got one of the letters, that is. In her letter, the Circleville letter writer accused Mary of having an affair with the superintendent of schools, Gordon Massey. The letter read, 
I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Not long after this, Mary's husband Ron also receives a letter. As I said earlier, this is a small town and everybody knows everyone's business. So the rumour spread rather quickly of this alleged affair. And Mary denies that this is happening, which Ron believes, and they do their best to continue life as normal and ignore the town gossip. Two weeks later, a new letter arrives at the Gillespie's door. This one reads, Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. And the CB, I'm assuming, means CB radios. I assumed as much. Mary and Ron's first assumption was that the letters were being sent by someone they knew. And that's not a big leap figuring the size of Circleville. They got together with three people they trusted to talk about a possible suspect. And and these three people were Ron's sister Karen, her husband Paul Fresher, and Paul's sister. Mary was pretty sure she knew who was sending the letters, so the five of them decided to scare the guy. Now, without threatening violence or anything like that, they sent him four or five letters that just said they knew who he was, they knew what he was doing, and for him to stop. And as we are accustomed to here at Insight, there is some different reporting of these events. In another telling, it was only... Mary, Ron, and his sister Karen at the meeting, and that they actually suspected that Paul was the letter writer. The letters sent telling the letter writer to stop were actually sent to him. But in the Unsolved Mysteries episode and Paul's own website, of course, the story is that Paul was at the meeting and participated in writing to the letter writer. However, everyone seems to stop short at actually naming Mary's suspect. And as you said, it apparently there was a lot of people, particularly at the school, that were getting the letters. I did read somewhere that a married teacher had gotten someone pregnant that wasn't his wife, and she turned up murdered. I think that's what you were mentioning earlier. Yes, and actually a prosecutor in the town also got accused of that same murder. It was a very high-profile murder case in the area. For a small town and what would be a small school, there was a heck of a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. So regardless of who was there and who sent what letters to whomever else, the letters stopped at this point. But then on August 17th, 1977, Ron headed out of his house enraged. He had received a phone call, and it's believed that this call was either from the letter writer or it was from someone confirming the identity of the letter writer Because as he headed out, he told his kids that's where he was going. He was going to confront the letter writer. And he stormed out of his house, armed with a gun, and he drove off in his red and white pickup truck. It's important to note that his kids don't recall him being drunk when he left the home, and he wasn't known to be much of a drinker. But the kids were 12-ish at the time, so it's possible they weren't aware. Mary was not home at this time. According to her brother-in-law, Paul, she was on a girl's trip to Florida at the time. And this would be the last time his family saw him. Shortly after leaving the home, Ron went through an intersection that he regularly drove through going out of his neighborhood, and he lost control of the vehicle. He drove off the road, struck a tree, and was killed. And there is an odd detail here. He had his gun with him, and it had been fired once. And the used cartridge was found in his car, but there was no bullet in the car or in him. He appeared to have died of accident-related injuries, and I guess it's possible he was holding the gun while he was driving and accidentally discharged it when he veered off the road or during the impact. 
there were no bullet holes coming out of his truck, but if it went through a window and the window shattered in the accident, then obviously there wouldn't be evidence. Or even if the window was wound down. Right, or the window was down. And I mean, it's possible he was shooting, he actually shot at somebody out the window before he went off the road or was driven off the road. We, I mean, we just really don't know. And the letter that had threatened his life, it referred to him knowing that he had a red and white truck, and that's the truck he was driving when he had his accident. So initially in the investigation, the Circleville police believe it was foul play, and they focus on one unnamed suspect, but he passes a polygraph and is cleared. The police then change their mind and rule Ron's death an accident due to Ron being under the influence of alcohol. The official police report stated that Ron died with one and a half times the legal limit of alcohol in his system. This decision seems to upset the Circleville writer, and soon after, the letters start again. These new letters all throw accusations at the sheriff for covering up a murder. And one of the reasons given in these new letters, and it's backed up by Ron's friends as well, was that Ron wasn't a heavy drinker and that level of alcohol in his system was unheard of for him. I'm kind of at a loss of what to think about the wreck. There was no evidence of murder that we know of. But at the same time, I do find the crash's timing quite convenient. For someone to suggest the letter writer killed him is illogical though, because the writer does seem upset about the affair. So then why would he or she want to kill the innocent husband? Unless, of course, this person is a complete psychopath, then there is no motive. And also the letter writer is the one accusing the sheriff of covering up a murder. Yeah. And so it definitely doesn't sound to me like the letter writer was involved in whatever did happen with Ron and his truck. But it's also quite like you said, the coincidence that as he's ready to confront the letter writer, he veers off the road, crashes, and dies. I think the drinking thing... So I watched that documentary, Something's Wrong with Aunt Diane. Yes. And so now I'm pretty convinced everyone's probably a closet alcoholic. Okay, maybe I'm not convinced about... But I'm less convinced by people insisting that other people aren't drinkers than perhaps I used to be. And if he felt there might have been truth to his wife's affair or if he was just under stress from these letters and he gets his phone call, his wife's out of town, he's home at 11 at night having a couple beers, especially if you think you're going to be in for the night and you don't plan on going anywhere. I, I mean, I could see him drinking more than he should have and having an accident. And really, one and a half times the legal limit it wouldn't be that much. No, not if you, I mean, like I said, if he was sitting at home, just kind of having a couple of beers and not really paying attention that he had a couple more than a couple, if he was in for the night. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem that odd to me that he would have been drunk. And yes, he mightn't have been a heavy drinker before, but with the stress of the letters and the alleged affair, it may have driven him to drink a bit more than usual. Right. So after Ron's death, Mary confesses to the affair with the superintendent that she was accused of in the original letter, although they claim their relationship only started after the letters started. Are we just going to let that stand or no? <laughs> we'll just pass. Okay. Of, of course, of course, it only started afterwards, because when you're accused of something, you just say, well, heck, I'm going to do it anyway. That's right. What When you're getting... I'm getting threatening letters about this affair I'm not having. I guess I should go have it. I, okay. Exactly. It's common sense, Charlie. Yeah, the affair started <laughs> after the letters. Okay. The letters continue through 1983, and some of these were even addressed to Mary's children. Also in 1983, the, Cir- the Circleville writer even has signs installed along Mary's bus route. So Mary sees the signs, and by this stage, she is just sick of all the harassment. So Mary pulls over the bus and gets out and goes to rip down one of the signs. But when she gets to the sign, she sees a box with a string attached. Now the next part is told in two different ways. In one story, she opens the box and sees the gun and then contacts the police. 
I've also seen it reported as Mary removing the box without opening it and taking it to the sheriff's office. Paul also claims on his website that Mary took the box home and had it for two hours before turning it over to the police. And she was driving the bus at this time, and so I would hope if she took the box onto the bus, it would be without children on the bus. She had a school, yeah, a bus full of school children, and here she is walking on with a gun. Right. Good look. So either way, she is apparently terrified, and the police are contacted. Police examine the gun, and they find the serial numbers have been partially scratched off. Despite the gun owner's attempt to destroy the evidence, it was kind of an amateurish attempt, and the police are still able to trace the ownership. And the gun is traced back to Ron's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. And at this stage, Paul was going through some of his own personal issues. He had just split with his wife, who, remember, is Ron's sister or Mary's former sister-in-law. So police go and interview Paul, and he's am- and he is adamant that he is innocent and that he has nothing to do with the booby trap. He did admit the gun was his, but he claimed it was stolen in a robbery of his house prior to all of this starting. He said that the robbery occurred when he was on vacation and he had never reported the gun being stolen. He said that he last saw it in his hiding spot, which was in his garage on top of an old refrigerator and underneath a bunch of junk. He said that he couldn't remember when he last saw it or when he realised it was missing, only that he didn't know what happened to it and why it was in the box. The gun traced to Paul really just tells me that it was someone who had access to Paul's house. I I mean, yeah, it could have been stolen, but really anyone who knew the gun was there, it wasn't secured. I mean, a box in the garage is not a secure gun. Anyone could have taken it. But after they interviewed Paul, they decided to do a handwriting analysis test with the letters that Mary had received. Now, let's first talk about how accurate forensic handwriting analysis is. And the answer is we don't really know because there's not been enough testing. Recently, a computer scientist was able to use a sample about 1,500 writing samples. So that's a pretty good sample size. And he was able to get a 96% accuracy rate But he used a computer to analyze things like letter dimension and pen pressure. As far as people go, I found a study from about 20 years ago where they put handwriting experts against lay people to see if they could match handwriting samples. And they had the same exact accuracy rate, 52%. So the experts were wrong as often as you or I would be and nearly half the time, which is essentially guessing. So let's just assume we're in the 52% of getting it right, and we need to collect samples from our suspect, and in this case, it's Paul. The best way is to take a known and verified existing sample that was created prior to the investigation. So a letter, a journal entry, pretty much anything long enough to give a decent length sample. Even a yearbook inscription that's beyond Have a Great Summer would work. And the more recent, the better, since our handwriting can, and it often does, evolve over time. Mine evolves over the course of writing the same paper, so, you know, who knows? (laughs) Uh, Good luck to anyone who had to try to match my handwriting. The other way to do this, if you because you don't always have a long enough sample, is to have the suspect produce a writing sample in front of a qualified forensic examiner. Now, the investigator would tell the suspect what to write. Tell them, not show them. So this would be taking diction. And the reason that they do it this way is that people, when they try to copy a written sample, they tend to adapt to the style that sample is written in. So if you're trying to copy something that has slanted letters, you'll tend to slant your letters even if you wouldn't normally do that. In this case, the sheriff, who is not a qualified forensic examiner, gave Paul one of the Circleville letters, which was in this odd block print. And when I say it's an odd block print, even the rounded parts of the R's and the S's were blocked off. 
So it wasn't just your typical capital block printing. He was asked to copy it as closely as he could. Now, believing himself to be innocent and wanting to comply, he did. He sat down and he copied it as closely as he could. So when they examined the two letters, the Circleville letter and Paul's copy of the letter, they matched. And because the testing wasn't conducted properly, they really couldn't or shouldn't have come down hard and said it was a match. Though they definitely tried to paint it as favorably as possible. So with the handwriting and the gun, that was enough for the police to arrest Paul for attempted murder. Seriously, if I was a suspect for a murder and a sheriff asked me to copy a letter that I knew was involved in that murder and to try to make my writing look like that, no way would I fall for that. I would like to think that I would refuse and demand to see an attorney who would know immediately that this was questionable. Yeah, I would really hope that I'm a little bit more sophisticated than to say, oh, okay, but... I mean, I also do follow true crime and wrongful conviction cases, so I may be a little more suspect than Paul was at this time. Now, it was taken for granted that whomever wrote the letters are is also the person who planted the box. That is mostly taken for granted in this case, that it was not two separate people. And so on October 24th, 1983, Paul stood trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. There were no charges directly related to the Circleville letters, but those letters still made their way into the trial, at least the one specifically to Mary. An expert testified that it was his opinion that Paul was the letter writer. Of course he thought he was the letter writer. He copied the letter exactly. Also during the trial, Paul's boss testified that Paul was not at work that day on the day the booby trap was found. On his side, Paul's fingerprints weren't found on the gun, the booby trap itself, or on any of the Circleville letters. And a search of Paul's home revealed nothing connecting him to the letters and no construction material that would have been used to make the booby trap. None of that was found in his home. And while Paul wasn't at work that day, he did have a solid alibi for all the relevant points in the day. And the prosecutor's handwriting expert had to concede on cross that the samples were not taken properly. So I'm just going to be honest. I'm, I guess I'm not surprised the judge let the handwriting analysis in, but I certainly don't think it should have been. If the expert says the test was done improperly, how can he testify to the results? I don't understand how a judge can allow that in. Regardless, after a week-long trial and a few hours of deliberation, the jury found Paul guilty of attempted murder, and the judge handed down the maximum sentence of 7 to 25 years. And so, Paul's in jail. And so, naturally, as the Circleville letter writer, that would be the end of the letters. And all the residents of Circleville lived happily ever after. And that's correct, right, Allie? Correct. So, thanks, everyone, and I will see you next week. <laughs> no, wrong. New letters start to arrive from Columbus, like all the other ones. This is even though Paul was locked away behind bars in a different town in Lima, all the way across the other side of the state. So the sheriff of Circleville complains to the warden and Paul is put into solitary confinement. But the letters still continue to be sent, still postmarked Columbus, but now they are being sent to all over the state. And this process would happen two or three times. Paul would be in the regular prison population, the letters would be being sent out like crazy, and then Paul would be put into solitary confinement, which doesn't stop the letters, and so on and so on. The warden of the prison then writes to Paul's wife, saying that as far as he is concerned, there is no way Paul would be able to send these letters from prison. For his non-parole period, Paul was your model prisoner. However, when he went up for his parole hearing, the board rejected his application based on the amount of letters still being sent. A few days after the hearing, Paul actually received a letter of his own. 
In this letter, the Circleville writer wrote, Now when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. So despite the letters still going out, Paul served out 10 years in prison and was released in May of 1994. Paul maintained his innocence up until he died in 2012. And the letters. The letters slowly died out sometime after Paul's release. I couldn't find an exact date or year, just that it was after Paul was released from prison. And an interesting side note, I mentioned this case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries. After the broadcast, the Circleville letter writer sent a postcard to Unsolved Mysteries. The letter read, Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. You come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. And it was signed, The Circleville Writer. Personally, I think this was just a hoax and someone just wanting their 15 minutes of fame. Okay, so we'll go to the theories now on who we think the Circleville writer could be. The first one is the obvious suspect, Paul. Now, I'm not sure why Paul wasn't concerned his gun was missing. I'm not a gun owner myself, but if I was missing a gun, I think I'd be a little more concerned because it could be traced back to me. I mean, did Paul own a lot of guns and that's why he didn't realise? I'm not saying that he did it, but his reaction to his missing gun, I found odd. My only thought on that is when they were asking him about the gun, maybe he had never found it missing, but he was afraid his wife had taken it when he was his ex-wife. And I guess they were getting divorced at that time, so he wouldn't really have a reason to cover up for her. I don't know. I guess that's... I'm already talking myself out of the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) And as for the serial number, it makes perfect sense if you commit a crime with a gun that you fear may be traced to you, that you attempt to remove all evidence that it's yours. Since Paul doesn't appear to be an experienced criminal, it makes perfect sense that he wouldn't know how to remove a serial number. I would say the fact that there were attempts of removing the serial number That makes Paul look more of a suspect. And if someone tried to frame him, well then why attempt to remove the serial numbers at all? Because that helps frame your victim. If we're going to go under the assumption that the person who rigged up that box was also the Circleville letter writer, I think it's pretty obvious that Paul was not the letter writer because another thing, he ended up suing for a violation of his civil rights while he was in jail for being thrown in solitary confinement, but also he was strip searched before and after visits with people to make sure he wasn't smuggling out the Circleville letters to anybody else to mail. And they could never find a single shred of evidence that Paul wrote those letters from jail. If you go to Paul's personal website, there is so much information A lot of it is a bit confusing and contradicts each other and doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it is worth the read if you have a spare three weeks. Yeah, it's about 160 pages long, I think. Yeah. So I'm not entirely convinced of Paul's innocence. The serial number being attempted to be scratched off the gun is the smoking gun to me, no pun intended. The only scenario where I think Paul could be innocent is if someone very close to him was responsible, such as his ex-wife or a brother, something like that. That would explain the attempt of covering up the serial number. So, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that. Could it have been Paul's ex-wife, Karen? Could she have been the Circleville letter writer? She would have had access to Paul's gun, obviously, And if she was looking to frame him, scratching off sort of the serial number, but still leaving it traceable would be a pretty good way to do it. And she also had a double motive here. First, if she really was trying to kill Mary, it could be because Mary cheated on her brother. But if it was an attempt to frame her husband, they were going through a contentious divorce, or it was a twofer. She could get back at both of them at once. Because apparently in the divorce, he got the property, he got the children. So she had reason to be 
wanting to get back at him. Right, and also wanting him in jail if he had custody of the children. Exactly. Shortly before the booby trap was found, there were reported sightings of a black and yellow El Camino, which is similar to the car that Karen's brother drove at the time. Now, how common was this car? Glad you asked, because it's been reported that there were only two cars in the entire state that fit that description, and his was one of them. Interestingly, seeing as the letter writer sent letters accusing the sheriff of wrongdoing in this case, the police reported this incorrectly in the police report. It's actually recorded as an orange El Camino. Now, honestly, I think that was probably just a mistake. But if you're looking for a conspiracy, there's a little bit of evidence there for you. The person seen with the car was a man, though, so it definitely wasn't Karen... At, with the El Camino planting the trap, but it could have been her brother or another man she knew. And again, we're just assuming that the booby trap was placed by the letter writer. I mean, anyone could have copied the letter writer's odd block print and used the threats as a cover for trying to kill Mary. Although I have to say, from the reports I've read about this booby trap, it was it would never would have worked. It wasn't rigged up properly. It it was a very lame attempt. And we'll get more to that in a minute. Yeah. And so there's a journalist named Martin Yant, and he did the definitive investigative reporting on this case. He wrote a letter to the parole board in favor of Paul's release. He said that during the entire process of digging into this case, he never caught Paul in a lie. He said Paul was always straightforward with him but that he couldn't say the same about Karen. And he did, in this letter to the parole board, specifically called out Karen. He characterized her as consumed with irrational hatred and said that she would lie to defame Paul without second thought. That said, this theory kind of fits that BBC mystery story better than real life. I mean, we have a bunch of solid suspects who are simply red herrings to distract us from... I don't Karen being the quiet criminal mastermind in the background of the story. And I watch a lot of those mysteries, so I'm speaking as an expert on BBC Mysteries. So this story would be perfect for Midsummer Murders or Inspector Lindley, but for real life, it seems a little bit fanciful. So the next theory involves Mary and her lover, Gordon, being the Circleville writer. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that the affair did start before the letters. Are we ha- is that fair to say? Yeah, let's just accept that as true. For them to even publicly admit the affair was quite strange, especially when they claim it only happened after the fact. The person with the best motive to kill the husband is none other than Mary herself or the superintendent. They were having an affair and lying about it, at least for some of the time, if you want to believe them. I'm not suggesting that she killed him, but she was the only one with a motive that I could see, unless you want to talk about the superintendent. One thing I do find convenient is that the booby trap with Paul's gun didn't go off. Now, maybe that was just luck on Mary's part, but let's theorise here that maybe it wasn't supposed to go off, because, say, either Mary herself or, or Gordon had to put it there. She would have known where Paul's gun was and at the very least had access to it. And if it wasn't any of these people, I do think the booby trap was never supposed to go off. As you said, Charlie, it was very poorly put together and it only existed as a method to frame Paul. Whoever set it up, and if it was meant to go off, that person would have had to know it could have accidentally went off and killed an innocent bystander. I don't think it was something the Circleville writer was willing to risk. Murder wasn't his MO. So I think the booby trap was there to frame Paul. And again, who would have the motive for doing this? Now going back to Paul, if I was Paul and wanted to set this trap, and I was good enough to send all these letters and get away with it for this long, I for sure would have done a better job at removing those serial numbers or getting a different gun that couldn't be traced back to me. Again, this had to be done by someone close to Paul and that this was the only gun they could get their hands on 
So they attempted to stop it being traced back to him or wanted to frame him. I don't know. Yeah, I think if we separate the Circleville letter from the box, it actually makes a little bit more sense. I mean, they they could have been using the letters as an excuse to set the trap and frame Paul. Do you find it's interesting that of all the signs that were up, this is the one Mary decided to pull down? I don't know if there was something different about it, because I read that there were signs all along her bus route and that this one fed her up. So the one that finally had her fed up happened to be the one that also had the booby trap. Now, it could be that that one was particularly vile and that's why and that would have been the design of the whoever made the box. But if we go under the theory that Mary or the superintendent were behind the box for some, I don't know, for some reason that they would, that she would know that she's supposed to pull over at that spot. And something else that seems to be overlooked that would explain the large number of letters, especially when Paul was in prison, is what happened in the Zodiac case. When the Zodiac mailed his letters in the 1960s, there was also many letters sent to the police as copycats. And some of these copycats were very convincing. Who is to say some of the Circleville letters weren't set by copycats or bored teenagers? I couldn't find anything about the letters being authenticated other than the sheriff's flawed test. And as we both have already mentioned, there are so many discrepancies and rumours about this case. Another one that we haven't mentioned yet involves the superintendent, Gordon Massey's son, and that some of the letters are signed with his initials. I don't think we need to get into this any further. I mean, this kid was just a teenager at the time. I don't think he would have had the time or the patience to devote all this time and effort to this letter-writing campaign about not only an affair involving his father, which I guess I could kind of understand, but the whole town as well. Yeah, I think the letters to Mary seemed very intent on exposing the superintendent. It wasn't, I'm going to expose you. It was, you need to bring this to the school board. You need to expose him. So it seems like the letters to Mary were actually targeting the superintendent and not Mary. And I thought that was interesting, except that so many other people in the town got letters that it's hard for me to believe that she was specifically targeted any more so than anyone else, except for the box, except for her husband's death. I mean, that's what makes her letters the big story. But a lot of other people were getting letters and letters that were vile and horrible and accusing them of horrible things. Things much worse than having an affair. Exactly. And more on the different types of letters, there are some rumours, I guess you could say, and I do say rumours because you can't see any of these letters. Besides the Unsolved Mysteries postcard, none of these letters have ever been published on the internet or elsewhere. If you can track down the Unsolved Mysteries episode, they do show quick flashes, but nothing of substance. So there are some rumours that the later letters are different, where the original letters were written in that distinctive caps lock type style. The letter ones are all written in lowercase or a mixture of capitals and lowercase. I think this supports that the Circleville writer is more than one person. Something that I would be interested in knowing, and I couldn't find it anywhere, but I wonder how many people would have known of the Columbus postmark on the letters. What I mean is, was this a closely kept secret by the police at the time? Because 400 letters is quite excessive. And I think it was like another 40 to 50 letters while Paul was in prison. But if enough people got those letters, someone in Circleville who was paying attention would have said, huh, they all look like they're from Columbus. I'll go up there or down there. Exactly. I have my geography wrong. (laughs) But something that I found interesting was... Nina, our friend at the Already Gone podcast, had done an episode about a teenager named Bill Comines who was murdered. And around the same time that there were Circleville letters, because the Circleville letters went on for years, he was receiving threatening letters. And he did 
end up being murdered. Most likely murdered. You have to listen to the episode. So Circleville was before Bill, correct? I think Bill was during Circleville, while some of the letters were still going. But after it started? Yeah, Bill's co-means was in 1980. So after, definitely after Circleville started, but before the 1983 when the box was found. That was from 1983, right? Yeah, before it escalated. I can't keep anything in my head. So this is the same time that the Circleville letters are going. Bill got those letters and ended up murdered. And now I don't know enough about those letters, but he was also in Ohio. He wasn't that far from Circleville, Columbus area. And I I think it's just worth noting. So definitely go over to Already Gone and listen to the Bill Comines episode. So finishing up on Circleville, what... Who is responsible? Solve it. Here's something in Paul's behavior that makes me think he was innocent. He spent the rest of his life trying to clear his name. He had done his time. He was off. He could have just moved on and did something else. Instead, he sent a 160-page document with all the evidence he needed to the FBI to try to beg them to help clear his name. I don't I don't think he did it. I think his behavior afterwards is saying that he didn't do it. But, I mean, that's just my armchair psychiatry over here. However, all that time in solitary confinement, he may have lost his mind a bit, which could have resulted in that 160-page letter. So I, I think the Circleville writer being Paul is the simplest explanation if we're saying the gun, the trap and the letters are related, look, it's his gun. Mary testified at the trial that Karen had said she thought Paul was sending the letters. Also, at the time all of this was happening, Paul and Karen were getting a divorce. I couldn't find anywhere what the reason for the divorce was, but but it wasn't amicable. I mean, the reason might very well be completely unrelated, but it doesn't look good for Paul. And you also must take into account Ron recognised the voice of the person who called before he died. This also puts a lot of suspicion on Paul. I have a lot of questions and I don't think the police are going to answer them for me. I have some, I just, I want to see some of those letters. I want to see what the booby trap looked like. I want to see how much writing was on it. Yeah, I have some questions before I feel like I can come down one way or the other on it. Well, let's leave Circleville and get in our, get into our time machine and go ahead a couple of decades. Our second story is out of Westfield, New Jersey. Back on June 2nd, 2014, a couple, Maria and Derek Broadus, and their two young children buy a $1.3 million six-bedroom house. And it's in a nice upper-class neighbourhood. Not something that you generally would see as the start of a true crime story. However, between June 5 and July 18, these owners receive three creepy and threatening letters from an unidentified person. This person sends these three letters to the new owners, telling them his grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, his father watched the house in the 1960s, and now he was in charge of watching the house hence the name of The Watcher. And when I started looking into this one, I originally thought this may be an urban legend or a hoax, because when we get into it, it just seems too creepy. But there are reliable news sources that reported about it at the time, and I was able to find lawsuits involving the new owners filing a lawsuit against the previous owners because of the fact that the house had a stalker that wasn't disclosed at the time of sale. But what is the truth and what is the stuff of horror movies? We will get to that in theories. But firstly, what did these letters actually say? The first letter was delivered on June 5 and it reads, My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched the house in the 1960s. It is now my time. I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. I ran from room to room, imagining the light 
with the rich occupants there. And now I watch and wait for the day the young blood will be mine again. I think this person has read or watched Amateurville Horror one too many times. Yeah, this entire case (laughs) sounds like Amityville. In the second letter received on June 18 and the third letter received on July 18, he states, Have they found out what is in the walls yet? In time they will. One read, I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood you have brought for me. Will the young bloods play in the basement? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. In one letter, he reportedly said that the home's windows and doors allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher. The letters also stated... Do you need to fill the house with young blood, I requested? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them out to me. I asked the previous owners to bring me young blood. So interestingly enough, this sounds like some sort of old school trolling chain letter type situation. But what I found scary about this is that the new family that were moving in, they had two young children. And these references to the young blood and calling out to the young blood, it was all quite disturbing to me. So I can only imagine the parents would have been out of their minds. And according to what I have read, they never actually moved into the house because of the letters. I saw that too, which made me wonder how the letter writer would know they had young kids. I know when I moved into any of my houses, the neighbors around didn't know who we were until we moved in. The only people we had met with were actually, we hadn't even met with the previous owners. We went to closing with our realtor. Like nobody knew who we were, who was moving in. So unless the people selling the house said, oh yeah, a nice young couple with kids is moving in to their neighbors. I don't know how anyone would have known they had kids. Otherwise, it'd take a lot of effort to look up who sold the house and then do a Google search and find out the children that they had children. And I don't know that that would have been even registered public record within the three days it took for the first letter to come. So there was a former FBI profiler named Joe Navarro who had a look at the letters to break them down, and he claimed he saw a theme that there was some sort of loss of money or the writer came from poverty or that he had an obsession with the house but couldn't afford to live there. But I think we need to go backwards before we go forwards. I mean, when you look at the history of the house, which was built in 1905, you will need to remember that the watcher is saying that, yes, he does feel like he has an ownership or an entitlement to the house. And allegedly, if you want to believe the letters... It dates back to the 1920s, so this is multi-generational. So maybe if we look at the house's history, we might get a better understanding. Okay, so the house was originally owned by the mayor, who then sold it to his son. His son then sells the house to a couple, and this goes on. The house actually changes hands four or five times in about seven years, from 1947 to 1954. But the interesting fact here is they all bought the house for $1. Now, having no idea of the value of the homes in the late 1940s to the mid-1950s, I checked with Mr. Google, and apparently the average house price was about 9000 Now, considering this was a nice neighbourhood and a larger-than-average home, it would be fair to assume that it was worth more than $9,000. So why was this home changing hands so many times and only for a dollar? I mean, I've known some family members to do this between themselves. It is also something that would be done to hide assets in time of, I don't know, divorce or bankruptcy. But without knowing more about the people who bought the house each time, I was only able to find their names. So it's difficult to know if it was a family thing or to hide assets or maybe something more nefarious would be odd to transfer it to family that many times in such a short amount of time 
I mean, are people really just moving in and moving out every two years? I, I mean, that that is odd. Each person that moved in, they all had different surnames. Right. And sometimes another reason it would be sold for a dollar is in a way to add one of the spouses, like only one spouse is initially listed and they were adding another okay. one. But again, why would you do that that many times? I mean, maybe someone just was serially married and <laughs> kept changing their name, but it just, yeah, you're, it doesn't make sense that it was done that many times in such a short amount of time. So if we're looking at things from the angle of believing what the watcher is saying, is it possible that it's something about the house changing hands for a dollar time and time again? Is it possible that he was a family member or business partner that got screwed out of a deal? What I'm saying is, typically real estate increases in value over time. Is it possible that he thought he was going to get a cut of the money when the house was sold, but then someone else got it for a dollar? It just seems strange to me that the intent and focus of the letters seem to be about the ownership of the house. I think there is something to that, and the fact that he calls himself the watcher, I think he feels some sort of entitlement to the house. So fast forward to November 29, 1990. The past owners, John and Andrea Woods, they buy the house according to property records. And these are the people that will later be sued by the Brodasses for failing to disclose the stalker and threatening letters. In May 2014, the Woods did receive a letter from, quote, the watcher. And the Woods admit to this. They were in that limbo time between when you have a contract on your house, but you haven't closed on it yet. So they were still living in the house, getting ready to move out. And they'd lived there for, what, nearly 24 years by this stage. Right. This single anonymous letter was received just days before the closing, and the Woods said that the note was not disturbing, and they didn't disclose it to the sellers because there was nothing to it to disclose. It wasn't threatening. It was just weird. According to what has come out in court so far, and we'll get to the court stuff, but the Woods were contacted by the Broadus family after they got the first letter, the first letter to the Broadus. And at that time, Andrea Woods confirmed that they too had received a weird anonymous letter shortly before closing, but it wasn't threatening or scary and they just threw it away. Even so, Andrea accompanied Maria Broadus to report the letter. And, like, we don't know what the letter said. I mean, we can't say for sure that the Woods never got any other letters, though it would be weird that Andrea would admit to one and not any others. We, I mean, we just don't know. It would make sense for her to not say anything. Right. If she was, if she was purposely hiding that the house was being stalked or watched, she would have shrugged her shoulders and said... No, I don't know what you're talking about. And to back that up, actually, one previous owner, Margaret Davis, lived in the house with her family for 26 years from the 1960s to the 1980s. She was interviewed for an article about whether she received any letters, and she denies even getting one letter or that she had ever heard the house being watched. So the Broadass family buy the house and they start moving their furniture in and starting to make the house their own. But then they receive three letters. And these letters also read, You have changed it and made it so fancy. It cries for the past and what it used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The house is turning on me. It is coming after me. I am in charge of it. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Stop changing it and let it alone. Now, from what I understand, these letters came through the mail system, so they weren't hand-delivered by the writer. And what this means is they were able to trace the departing post office. And the letters were postmarked from Kearney, which is about 19 miles or 30 kilometres from the actual house. So it's still fairly close and realistic that someone could be actually watching the house that sent the letters. Outside of that, there is also another twist in terms of some testing that was done. The letters were all handwritten and they were tested for DNA by the Union County Prosecutor's Office 
and they discovered the letters actually contained female DNA. The testing also checked the DNA against that of the new female owner, but it wasn't hers. Strangely, though, the report the prosecutor's office releases, it says the new owners actually went directly to the prosecutor's office instead of contacting the local police. I mean, what would you do, Charlie? You get a couple of letters that are vaguely threatening, mostly aimed towards your children. You ignore one, the second gets you nervous, but after the third, you would think you'd go straight to the police with the letters, right? I would go to the police. I would just assume the prosecutor wouldn't do anything until the police investigated. And I believe the reason they tested the DNA was because one of the potential theories was that the new owners might have sent the letters themselves in an effort to have the purchase of the home stopped or reversed for some reason. Now, I've bought a few homes in my time, and I don't believe it's that hard to stop a home sale. Usually what happens is you lose your deposit. Yeah, that's pretty much it. For me personally, if they were trying to stop the home sale, I can think of different ways to do it, more effective and easier ways than writing spooky letters, but maybe if it saved them, what, tens of thousands of dollars, it was worth it for them. I guess on a $1.3 million house, the escrow would have probably been higher than I've ever paid in escrow, but it does seem odd that they wouldn't just stop the, they just wouldn't close on it, just stop the proceedings. Yeah. So the Broadus family never move into the home because they are frightened by the letters and they sue the Woods family for failure to disclose the stalker. In February 2015, the house is placed back on the market for $1.49 million. Over the course of the next few months, the price drops at least twice, first to $1.35 million and then down to $1.25 million. Now, I don't know if you picked up on that, Charlie, but I do find it very curious that when they relist the house, they increase the sale price there. I was I actually wondered if the increased sale price was to compensate for realtor fees so that they would come out even. I mean, I didn't do the math, though. I mean, I guess they may also have been trying to make up for damages because they weren't able to move into the house and they would have had to have. And they would have had to pay to live somewhere else during this time. I can't even imagine paying the mortgage on a $1.3 million house and rent or mortgage on another place. Exactly. All of that wouldn't have been cheap, but would it have really been to the tune of $190,000? It just seems like a bit of overkill for me. And we do know from the lawsuit that the new owners claim they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on renovations. But their neighbours deny that any contractors ever came to the house and there were no permits ever filled with the city. Yeah, it's interesting. They also, when they sued, they also sued the realtor that sold the house. The, I, I'm assuming it's the realtor that was representing the sellers, not that their realtor. But the suit against the realtor was dismissed. And the judge presiding over the case has said from the bench that the Woods letter is the linchpin of the case. Either it was threatening and they should have disclosed it, or it wasn't threatening and they had no responsibility to disclose it. But without the letter, it's going to be really hard for the Broadus family to prove their case. Exactly. Early in 2016, the Woods countersued for damages, both financial and to their reputation. And that's fair if you consider that the Broadus family has publicly accused them of deception for not disclosing the letter prior to close. The Woods have only confirmed the one letter, and the Broadus's attorney said that there may be more evidence that the Woods knew about the Watcher. So basically, he said in open court that they are still lying. No previous owners had issues with stalkers or weird letters. The judge decided in August not to dismiss the full suit, though, like I said, the case against a real estate agent and some of the claims against the Woods were dismissed, and that was the intentionally or negligently causing emotional distress. From what I've read of the judge's statements, I think the broadest case is hanging on by a very thin thread if they can't find more information or evidence Okay, so on to theories. Mm -hmm. 
So theory one, the watcher is real. That for some reason, this person feels that they have some sort of entitlement and he is now looking to scare anyone who goes in to live there. Or maybe even looking to damage the value of it. One of the theories related to this that I've seen is that like the Amityville house. It's hard to sell, it's hard to sell houses like this. Although we are kind of comparing apples and oranges here because this is not anything close to Amityville. We can't really confirm anything actually happened here. And nothing happened after three letters. So we've really been sitting for most of this time with absolutely nothing happening. Theory two, this is the homeowners themselves or a friend of theirs helping them with some sort of scam to help them get out of buying this house. And now on top of that, they sue for damages. As I said, they tried to sell it for more than what they paid for it. If they are that scared, you would think they would just want to cut ties and just get rid of the house. And then they have a lawsuit against the former owners. Is this some sort of money-making scam fed by a ghost story? I think it's very, very possible. Yeah, it would definitely be, if it was a con on their part, it would be a long con. Because like I said, they've been paying the mortgage on this house this whole time and the rent or mortgage wherever they're living. And it's very possible they didn't think they'd still be owning the house two years, two and a half years later. I mean, they could have thought this by this point they would have been out of it. Exactly. The next theory is that it's a hoax. And I think this is also quite likely, especially considering NBC are using this story as inspiration for a new TV show they are developing named, of course, The Watcher, which you all know that I will watch the heck out of because I'm a sucker for that type of thing. So if this was all created as some sort of spin or hoax to potentially get a TV deal and entice viewers, they got me. Yeah, I have seen especially early on before they before the lawsuits started that this was a movie promo like the Blair Witch or something that this was just completely faked news stories but I mean there really is a court case now so unless the owners themselves made it up right to hopefully get a tv deal which is a long call but you know we have to consider that they're could be a third party who has a financial incentive to devalue this home. This is a desirable, well-established neighborhood within commuting distance of New York City, including easy access to public transportation into the city. Now, I mean, this is where you want to live if you're out there. And it's a, and it's a nice house, too. You can see pictures online. It's a beautiful old house. Yeah, and you can't find houses that big... It's just, right, this house is what everybody wants. I'm actually surprised even with the watcher letters, they didn't find somebody to buy it. But perhaps someone else was interested in the home and they had their offer refused by the Woods. We don't really know enough about the sale process, but, you know, we could speculate because we like to do that. So let's say someone put in an offer for a million dollars and had it turned down or worse what if they put in an offer for what the Broadus family paid and they still didn't get the house? Perhaps they just wanted to be a jerk to the people who did get the house. They sent a couple of letters because they were mad or upset about it just to kind of scare them. But maybe they wanted to kind of push them to sell, hoping the house price would drop because of these creepy letters that they now have to disclose. But there's also... The possibility, if someone's thinking kind of bigger picture, this is a well-established neighborhood and maybe you want to motivate some people in the neighborhood to sell so that you could buy their house. So as a homeowner, if you paid $300,000 20 years ago for a house and you know you could sell it for a million dollars now and there was a creeper in the neighborhood... I mean, you might be motivated to kind of look at that nice, maintenance-free senior housing neighborhood down the street. So there is a possibility that this is a hoax or a retaliation to, de to devalue the home 
so that people can buy it cheaper, which obviously didn't work. And this is all still going on. The Broadasses still own the home. As you said, Charlie, the lawsuits are still going on. The Broadasses recently applied to split the block in half, so they want to demolish the current house and build two in its place. Apparently the neighbours aren't too happy about it because they are all older houses and it's a beautiful leafy green neighbourhood. And from what the Broadasses want, it would mean several established trees being removed and it would look out of character for the area. All of this has been adjourned until the end of the year, so we'll see what happens and if the Watcher has anything to say about it. So what is your thoughts here, Charlie? I don't think the Broadus family is in danger. I don't think the Watcher is really a stalker of the house. I don't think the Woods family knew about it ahead of time. I don't know if this is a long con or just a really, you know, a a prank. I'm kind of leaning towards it's either a con or it's a prank. I don't think there's somebody stalking that house. I think the Broadus family is fine to move in. That said, I'm not entirely sure I would move in to a house where I got letters that I felt were threatening towards my children. My gut feeling here is that the likelihood of someone truly watching that house, look, to me, this story is almost too creepy, which points to the letters being some type of hoax. It just seems very fake to me, unfortunately, or fortunately to the owners or any future owners. I really don't think we can put any stock into these letters. However, I do think it's going to make some good TV. So we only have one more episode left this year and then we will take a one-week break for you and a three-week break for us. And in the meantime, you can contact us via email, insightfulpod at gmail.com, Instagram at insightpod or Twitter at insightfulpod. We are also on Facebook, like the page and follow the group. It's a closed group, but send a request and one of us will accept it. On our website, you can listen to all our episodes and check out some of our research. Also, if you are able and want to support the show, you can find links to our Patreon account for an ongoing monthly donation or our PayPal account for a one-off donation. And most importantly, if you are listening via iTunes or any other podcast app that will let you, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps bring more ears to the show and keeps us doing what we do. So until next week, bye everyone. Bye guys. Yeah. Hey yo, Ali, what's up? Insight. True crimes. That's right. Hey, check me out. Yo, unsolved mysteries. Forgotten history. What happened in the back alley? Charlie and Ali are trying to figure it out and not leave any doubts. And trying to make the other one have to pronounce crazy words like Wollongong. Murder mysteries, where did the body go? They on Skype going live on the podcast. Insight, you know they both got that. In the Women True Crime Podcast, it's grouped down under to the U.S. And now to you, historical finds live on the air. And trying to run from the killer drop bears. Yeah, this is Insight. That's right, going live on Skype, doing it right. Come on.